you have your Bibles, can you turn to Luke chapter 4? This morning's sermon is going to be from Luke chapter 4. And I do want to say happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. We wouldn't be here without you. And this morning's sermon is actually is not a Mother's Day sermon. However, it's a message that I definitely think is pertinent to mothers. It clearly has great application, and hopefully as we, as we go through this, you'll see that uh, truly this, this has great application for mothers and for all of us. So, Before we get started, let's ask that God would help us. Father, we need you. We need your word. This morning we ask that you would grant us life. We ask that you'd help us to see and to understand and that we might better know Jesus and the life he brings. We might know the good news of his coming and what he came to do for us in regard to sin. Help us, Father, we ask. Pour out your spirit that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Do you realize the greatest problem facing the world, the greatest problem facing the world, and all of us here, is sin? It's a serious problem. It's created so much disaster, so much havoc, so much destruction, so much war, that it's hard to even imagine. And when you have sin, and you have Satan, who is the most crafty, evil, and pernicious creature alive, who uses sin and death to enslave the world, you have the two most formidable foes on this planet. Therefore, because of this, whoever would save us, whoever would deliver us from these formidable foes, must be able to take them both on. Because unless the salvation, the Savior of the world comes to take on our worst foes, the one who's plummeted all of humanity and, and all this whole planet into destruction, decay, into war, into chaos, think of all the trouble in your own life. Think of all the trouble that you've ever had, all the destruction in any relationship. What does it come from? Sin. It does. All the problems, all the tearing apart of relationships, all the self-interest, all the pride, all the ego, all the people who are, who are willing to sacrifice somebody else for their own good or for their own pleasures. So if someone is to save us, we're all in this predicament together. We need, we need help. We need someone to save us and deliver us. They must be able to take on sin. They must be able to take on Satan. Because we are bound by this sin and under the dominion and rule of this Satan, this devil. And so we need somebody who can free us, deliver us from this. The Savior must be able to face sin, face temptation, face the devil head on, and come out the victor. And this leads us to our text this morning. Because in Luke chapter 4, this is the temptation of Jesus. And to this point in Luke, 
We've had nothing but approving that Jesus is indeed the true Son of God and the Son of Man. His credentials are impeccable. There was the testimony of the Archangel Gabriel. Then the birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. Then the miraculous birth of John, who was the forerunner of Jesus. Then the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father testifies from heaven, and the Holy Spirit testifies with His presence that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Son of Man. And then last week we looked at the genealogy. The genealogy proves that Jesus is indeed the seed of the woman. Jesus is indeed the seed of Abraham. Jesus is indeed the son of David, the savior of the world. And here now we have Jesus himself squaring off with the world's biggest enemies. And you know what he proves? We are going to see that Jesus proves that he is indeed the faithful son. The faithful son. So in order for us to understand, understand sorry, the importance of of what is taking place here in this text, we need to understand the context. In the very beginning, the first two verses, it says a lot for us that kind of build a framework. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, for forty days being tempted by the devil. There's a lot of words being used there that can just easily go right over our heads and we miss the importance of them. There is a context being built here. It begins by saying Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is to show where it is his power comes from. And it also sets the stage for the encounter that is going to ensue. Jesus is not isolated from God. And he is not being led there because God is somehow against him. It'd be easy to think that God was against you, being led into the wilderness. What's in the wilderness? Wild animals, no vegetation, no food, no water. The wilderness is where people go and die. If anything is a picture of almost being abandoned, it's the wilderness. The wilderness has been abandoned by God, it seems like. Jesus, it says full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan, is led into the, there by the, by the Holy Spirit. Yet he's not isolated from God. He's not abandoned by God. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led there by God. It's funny how we're tempted to think that God is against us, that he's against us because we go through some miserable wilderness in our life. Yet it was God who actually led us into the wilderness. And he does it for reasons we're going to see. He does it for our benefit. And then Jesus, it says, he he says, full of the Holy Spirit, return from the Jordan. This is another significant phrase that helps build the context. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he returns from the Jordan. Well, we know it just happened in chapter 3. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And so after being baptized, Jesus returns from the Jordan. He goes from the promised land into the Jordan, from the Jordan into the wilderness. Now, does the Jordan spark anything in your minds in, Israel, in Israel's history? If you think of the Jordan, the Jordan was also passed and crossed by Israel. Israel went into the Jordan, passed through the Jordan, went into the Promised Land. They came from the wilderness to the Promised Land. 
Jesus goes from the promised land through the Jordan into the wilderness. Jesus is the new, as a type of Israel. He's setting up this and using language that is, is for all those who are familiar with Israel's past, with God's people's story. They're familiar with this, these words of the Jordan. He's crossing the Jordan and he's heading into the wilderness. These are areas, these are names that are very familiar to them, especially in their past and their history. So Jesus is a new Israel. Jesus is a faithful son, as we're about to see. And this is why it's important for us to understand that Jordan and his, his being baptized, his crossing from the Jordan into the wilderness, is just not some random informa- information. It sets up a context in which Jesus here is the new Israel, the new faithful son who's going to go, instead of this time, from wilderness to promised land, from promised land to wilderness. Go back, as it were, as a son, and there be tested. This is also why it says... Jesus was led into the wilderness for how many days? This is significant. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness, verse 2, for 40 days. The 40 days in the wilderness corresponds to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. And 40 is very significant. It's a significant number. Just reflect for a moment on what God did around the number 40, what happened and how he uses the number 40. I'll just quickly go over some stories in the past. God flooded the earth for how many days? 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was 40 years old when he fled to the wilderness. Do you know how long he was in the wilderness? 40 years. And then he comes and brings Israel out and Israel goes into the wilderness. And how long is Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Moses, while he was in the wilderness, went up to the mountain. And when he went up to the mountain to meet with God, how long was he there? Forty days, forty nights. In the Judges, on several occasions, when God would bring judgment upon his people Israel because they were lost in sin and had turned from him, and when he put them under oppression, they were under oppression for guess how, how long? Forty years. And then he would raise up a deliverer. Samuel judged Israel for 40 years. And Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days. 40 is very significant because 40 is the number of judgment and testing in the Bible. And here we have Jesus going under the testing and trial as God's son, this new Israel. For how long? It says here for 40 days. Very significant. The context here is shouting out to us, Jesus here is the new Israel. He's the new faithful son, the one who's going to go into the trial, the test, under the judgment of God. And here we're going to see his credentials. Is he indeed the son of God? Is he indeed the one who can stand, withstand this judgment, withstand this temptation, withstand it and deliver? Another aspect that shapes the context here in the text is that Jesus is also this new Adam who's not going to be tested under the same kind of conditions as Adam, but still be tested by the same one as Adam. Because for 40 days, it says in verse 2, for 40 days being what? Being tempted by the devil. Well, even the fact that Jesus is going to be going and being tempted by the devil devil is reminiscent of the garden. And we had read for us this morning Genesis chapter 3, where Adam, 
The first Adam is in a garden, the blessing of God upon him, right? And what happens to him is that the devil comes and he tempts him. And here now, Jesus, he's in the wilderness. The exact opposite of a garden, isn't it? The exact opposite. And Jesus is being tempted by the devil, just like Adam. But unlike Adam, Jesus is God's faithful son. It was cold and harsh. He has no food or water. Yet he grumbles not against God, did he? And he does not listen to the luring offers of the evil one, unlike the first Adam. Instead of this, despite the horrific and horrible circumstances, what what does Jesus do? What does he do? He trusts God fully to provide for him, to be his provider. And why is that? Because Jesus is the perfect son. He's the obedient son. And this is all looming in the background with just in two short verses, so much is going on here. He's using words and phrases that are meant to take us back and allude to what's, got, what's happened with God and his people in the past. Jesus is going into a context. He's in a situation that is reminiscent of creation story with Adam and Eve in the garden and Israel in the wilderness. And there he's going to be tested and tempted. So with that as the understanding of the context that's hap- in which this happens, in the background, in which Jesus enters in temptation, I'd like to now to move to a second point. However, if you have a bulletin in there, it's going to have a second point that says the details of the devil's tempting. It's not there anymore. I removed it. This is no lo- that point is gone, and the reason being is this. I was hoping to get through all that material and and help us to walk through that, but it's just loaded. It's loaded full of incredible application about our understanding of how it is even the devil tempts. And as devil tempts, and as we walk through it, I want us to really see what is going on here and learn and understand his schemes and how desperately Jesus was tempted and how difficult it was and how faithful he really was in it and what that means for us today. So I'm going to, that's for next week, point two. And I'm going to jump into the third point. I want to finish this sermon by looking at the reasons for Jesus' temptation. And this particular point is really related and connected to what I just said about the context. The context sets it up, but it also helps us to understand why was Jesus tempted? Why was, did this happen? Why did it need to happen? Well, first of all, because... Jesus wasn't just entering into an experience that finds parallels with Adam and Israel. Jesus was entering into an experience that has implications and applications for all of us here today. Jesus, when he, do, when he, he just didn't do this for himself. He does it for us. What Jesus is doing is undoing what we have done. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, back in the context I set, Jesus, and I said Jesus is like Adam. We have to understand that the reason why Jesus is doing this is because Jesus is becoming, he is the new Adam. Who would save and deliver his people as opposed to bring condemnation through his sins. Jesus, like Adam, was also born of God from heaven. 
Adam was formed, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, how was Adam formed? God took the dust of the earth, formed man, and he breathed life into him. Well, how was Jesus formed? Jesus was not formed like a normal human is formed. We have a sperm and an egg that come together, and it, it forms this new human being. He takes this virgin Mary and, and, and her egg, and he t- the Holy Spirit impregnates her. It's probably a bad way to put it. The Holy Spirit causes her to be pregnant. And so she, she is with child. So Jesus has, is this new Adam. He's unlike, he's just like Adam. He's the seed of the woman, the seed of Adam. He's the son of David. He's just like him, but he's not like him. He's born from heaven. Adam, as we looked at the genealogy, was the son of God, it says, in, in chapter 3 of Luke. Jesus, as we know, is the son of God. Both were born from heaven. Adam from dust, Jesus from Mary, the Virgin Mary. And so as a result of this, Jesus is like us in every way, but not like us in every way. Jesus is a new man, a man born from heaven. And this makes it very, him very unique. He's the God-man, fully God, fully man. And here we have this new man. And the reason why he's new is because now, just like Adam, who's born of God, Jesus is born of God from heaven. And this is important. Because just like Adam, through Adam, what happened is Adam sins. And as a result of that sin, plummets all of humanity into what? Sin and death. So sin and death has now corrupted all of humanity as a result of it. As a result of that one man's actions. In like manner, Jesus as this new Adam. The reason he goes through this is that he's unlike him in this way. He doesn't fall, but he obeys. And just as Romans chapter 5, 17 through 19 puts it like this. Listen up. This is really great stuff and how it compares the two. For if by the trespass of the one man, who's that referring to? It's Adam. Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made righteous, or sorry, sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And what Paul is doing there in Romans chapter 5 is comparing how through these two men, Through them, through the one man's disobedience, Adam plummets all of humanity into the sin and death. Yet through this one man, Jesus, through his acts of obedience, brings those who are in him to life. So Jesus underwent the temptation to undo what Adam had done as as a new Adam. Jesus is a new Adam. And this is why he was tempted by the devil. He was tempted to go under the same trial, the same testing, to see if he would pass. And indeed, he does pass. He passes it with flying colors. The first Adam fails. The second Adam passes. The second Adam is faithful, a faithful son who no matter how difficult, no matter how harsh, no matter how extreme it is, he's faithful. He submits to the Father. Just think of that for a moment. 
Just think of the difficult circumstances. You know, Adam in the garden, he had it pretty posh, didn't he? Wasn't it pretty good? He says, God tells him what? You can eat of all the, all of the garden, all of the trees of the garden. Eat them all. It's all yours. It's all blessing. It's all good. It's a garden. It's flourishing. And he says, except for this one tree. Except for one. So Adam's in the midst of abundance, in the midst of blessing. And he has one small command. And the devil comes and tempts him this once, and he falls. Whereas Jesus, compare his environment to Adam's. <laughs> Try to find a tree. Try to find some water. Have you ever been hungry before? Have you ever went without food? If I go like six hours, start to think I'm starving. I couldn't believe yesterday. I think it was like five hours. I couldn't believe how hungry I felt. Like, man, I'm famished. I need to eat. That's ridiculous. Jesus goes 40 days. Couldn't imagine. If you've ever fasted before, went without food for a certain amount of time, you realize this is unbelievable. And you've got to understand, it's easy to pass off, oh, yeah, he's God. No big deal. We understand, yes, he is, but he's fully human just like us. He feels and experiences and understands what starvation is like. In his body, he has the same cravings, the same desire. At 6 o'clock, he smells the lasagna and he gets hungry too. He has the same experience as we do, yet without sin. Yet in that particular circumstance, he does not fall to the temptations which were much greater than Adam faced. Three doozies that are recorded, but understand, it wasn't just three doozies. We're talking the whole 40 days. It says Jesus, for 40 days, verse 2, being tempted by the devil. What we have in those three examples are exactly that, examples. Jesus was under severe temptation in a severe scenario and situation, and he passed the test was the faithful son who trusted the father another reason why jesus temptation was was needed was because he was to be the israel the new israel as i alluded to earlier i talked about who obeyed his father israel was god's chosen son and then god tested his son to see if he would trust him and be faithful to him and he failed miserably What did Israel do when they passed through the Red Sea and entered in the wilderness and they found that there was no food? (gasps) Oh, great. God, you let us out here to die. We should have stayed in Egypt where there was food, right? How dare God? Lead us out here to die, to starve. There's no water. There's no food. This was great. So right away, they start grumbling. They start complaining. They're not trusting God at all. Father, wait a second. How many miracles have you just seen? What did I just do in Egypt? What is it that I can't do? <laughs> I can make water turn into blood. I can cause fleas and frogs and hail and I, you name it. I can take the Red Sea and I can split it. What does not obey my voice? What can I not do? What have I not done to prove it? So they got proof upon proof upon proof upon proof. He puts them in the wilderness. They look at their circumstances and go, How dare you, God? You brought us out here to kill us. My son, can you not trust me? Look what I've done for you already. 
They just, they grumbled and they complained. Yet you compare it to what Jesus did. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he hasn't eaten the whole time. He hasn't seen any water. Israel didn't go no 40 days without food and water. God was taking care of them from the get-go. This is day one. Day one, they checked out their environment. This is not good. We're going to die. How are you going to feed all these people? Jesus, what does he do? He checks out his environment. He looks around. He says, my father will provide. Wouldn't you start to doubt, like, day 10? Day 15? Day 20? What are you thinking? My father will provide? Day 40, still nothing. The devil comes, and that's why he tempts him with this bread. He knows what Jesus can do. Turn, I know you're really hungry. Turn this into food. Some bread and eat. Well, that'd be easy to do. But Jesus is there waiting on, trusting in his Father, who's faithful. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm here waiting on my Father. He's faithful. He'll provide. Jesus is the faithful Son. It's proven right here that he is indeed the faithful Son. And that's one of the reasons why he's here to being tempted, to prove that he's the faithful Son. The last reason for Jesus' temptation is connected to the, others, these, the other two that I just finished mentioning. But it's more has more application to us. And here's the grand reason for all of humanity and the reason why he went through this. As I said in the, in the intro, sorry, the greatest problem faced by the world is sin. In addition to that, Satan and the death which sin brought us into. Sin, Satan, and death. This, the three nasty enemies that face us all. So if we're to have a savior, he must be able to face sin, Satan, and death head on, right? He must be able to face them and overcome them. If he can't face them and if he can't come out the victor, then he's failed, right? He's failed. Just like you and me. He's no different than us. He couldn't face them. No one on this earth has been able to face these foes. They brought destruction, pain, war, torment into our lives and into the world from the very beginning. Do you know all that's evil in the world? All that is evil in your life, all that is evil is from the result of sin, Satan, and death. That's where it comes from. And you know a symbol of these monsters? A symbol of these monsters is Goliath. Remember the story, David and Goliath? He's taunting all of Israel. This big giant of a man, like nine feet tall, massive. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's faster than anybody else. He's the one who, he's a, he's a warrior of the most elite level. Take on anyone. And he's taunting Israel for 40 days. Taunting Israel's God. And the way it worked back then, if you put your two top dogs in the arena and they fight as representatives of the people, the one who wins, wins for the people. Taunting Israel, taunting Israel's God. And here we have this young shepherd from the hills of Judah. Hears about it. And he's ticked. 
How dare this Philistine mock our God like this? David goes down there with a sling and some stones, ready to take him on. He goes down to take on Goliath. And when you look at the scene, you've got this massive monster of a man. David. David won't put up with this because he's mocking the God of Israel. And as we know the story, David takes him on and he wins and Goliath falls. Proving that God is with Israel. And God is with them and blessed them. But you know what? Most importantly, we see here is like a type and a shadow. It's a picture of what Jesus was coming to do, was to take on the Goliath. And a Goliath that's much more fierce and gnarly than Goliath. A Goliath that has consumed all of humanity, a monster who is, who's eaten us alive, so to speak. If you think of what, how, how, what the effects of sin and death and the devil and its effect on the earth and its effect in your lives and, and all of us, if you think about it, would you not say it's horrific? Would you not say it's awful? Who will save us? Who will deliver us from this Goliath? Anybody who's walked down into the ring, anybody who's attempted or tried, have they been able to do it? No. They've failed. They've lost. But Jesus faced the dragon of old. He faced sin. He faced temptation. And you know what he did? He overcame. He beat them. He faced temptation like no one's ever faced it before, and he overcame. He faced the schemes of the devil head on at his best, firing all his fiery darts straight at Jesus, doing all he can, all he can, being, being, they just cannot get through. Jesus stands. He stands the victor, the one who goes on to take on the Goliath, and he comes out the victor. Here we are, just like Israel, standing on the sidelines, watching, cheering, thinking, he won! He won! He beat them! How is this possible? The the enemies that have plummeted humanity into the grave from the very beginning has won. Our Jesus has won. And that's that's the great point of this story. As we understand, as we read, why did Jesus go into the, te- the, into the wilderness? And why was he tempted like this? He went in to be the new Adam. He went in to be the new Israel. He went in as our representative to face the great enemy of our souls. And he conquered. He won. Do you know what this means for you? For me? That sin and death has lost its grip and power. If any of you are sitting here and you have gone to Jesus and you know the power of Jesus and you know what it's like to be freed from sin and death and the grip of the evil one, you can, he- you can be here this morning and you can rejoice and give thanks. And the reason that's happened is because Jesus took them on and conquered. He won. You're only free this morning. If you're free from sin and death, you're free from the grip of the evil one. You're only free because of what Jesus has done. And sometimes we get lethargic. The fact is, we've known this freedom for a long time. But we have to remember, what was it like to live in bondage? What was it like to live in darkness? If you've lived in darkness, if you've lived in bondage, and you felt the chains heavy on you, and you know the release from that bondage, 
you have nothing but a song in your heart and praise on your lips. The Lord Jesus Christ is victor and he's delivered me. That's your song. There is no salvation, no salvation from sin, death, and the devil apart from Jesus. No one or nothing else has been able to take them on and win. Jesus took them on and conquered. And if you're sitting here today and know that, do you know what you're to do? You know what your response is? To give thanks. To rejoice, to praise the Lord Jesus Christ for his victory, to celebrate the freedom that is yours in Christ. Sin, death, the devil no longer has its stranglehold over you. You're free. And if you know that freedom, give thanks. And if you don't know that freedom, all you have to do is cry out to Jesus because he saves. Jesus saves today, tomorrow, and he will continue to save. That's what he does. Broken, contrite people who come to him with nothing and all they do is fall before him and they have both hands wide open. They say, Lord Jesus, save me. I've not known a single person who's ever cried out to Jesus with a pure heart, not half cried out, not says, let me hold on to my sin and let hey Jesus, would you mind freeing me? Never, ever. I've never seen anybody in that case ever be free. But I've never seen somebody who comes with both hands open and he says, Jesus, please set me free. Deliver me and save me. I've never seen a person like that ever not be free. I've seen a lot of people not be free because they go to Jesus with a half heart. They go to Jesus partially, kind of giving up with one hand but holding back in the other. But I have not seen somebody with all their heart cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me where he didn't do it. Because when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And the reason why you can have and experience that freedom is because Jesus took on your enemy and won. Amen. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your beloved son in whom you're well pleased, whom you delighted in, who withstood the most severe temptation, who took on sin, Satan, and death, and overcame. Jesus, you are the victor. You're the one who sets captives free. And for that, we praise you forever and ever. Amen.